KRXO FM and KRXO HD Oklahoma City, a product of Tyler Media, reaching over 1 million Oklahomans every week. Now, the Outdoor Hour, giving you the inside scoop on the great outdoors on 1077 The Franchise. As long as I can remember, I've been drawn to the outdoors. There's something primal in each of us that awakens when we step outside the bounds of modern society and back into the vast possibilities of the natural world. The more civilized our lives become, the louder our hearts cry for reconnection with our native ways. Failure is imminent, dangers drawing nigh, but approached with reverence and tact, the outdoors return wisdom and gain. In both the outdoors and in life, harvests are fleeting, but lessons and memories abound. With that in mind, we step forth boldly together in pursuit of ourselves outdoors. We are nothing more than tree stand troubadours. Welcome inside the outdoor hour. We are excited to have you with us this week. You know, from the very beginning, we've had a handful of ideas for show episodes that we were just really excited about. Um, and this week's is one of those. We've got a guest with us this week that we'll bring into the conversation shortly. But when you're talking, uh, like we do often in this space, about wild game um, preparation, you know, the holistic view of what it means to be a conservationist and a hunter or an angler, breaking down your food, connecting yourself with uh, those landscapes and those experiences and those food sources. There's really none better to bring into the conversation uh, with more wide-reaching experience and network um, and awards as well. Today's uh guest is a James Beard award-winning author in this space, the owner of a restaurant, a top restaurant in Austin called Die Due. His name has become synonymous with the Meat Eater brand. Um, he is a conservationist. He's an award winner. He is Chef Jesse Griffiths. Jesse, thanks for being here, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Josh Stratton is here with us this week. Joshua Wildman Stratton. Mm, in the house. We've also got back behind the glass, as always, Goldfish on the ones and twos. It was a good flush. Solid flush. <laughs> Nine out of ten there, for sure. Uh, Josh, you kind of put this whole thing together, though. You and Jesse cross paths. Man, it feels like now it was a couple of months ago, right, down in Austin? Yeah, it feels like it was like six months ago to me. But, yeah, I think it was just a couple of months ago. Um, <clears throat> Backcountry Hunters and Anglers uh, in Texas, an unbelievable group of human beings, um, for the second year in a row has put on an event called Conservation Conversation where they invite uh, different people from the industry to sit on panels and, and discuss relevant topics of conservation and threats and the things that we've learned. And um, I was incredibly honored to be invited to speak on the uh, public lands panel. And Jesse was on the panel and uh, was just, you know, <clears throat> great to be down there to sit in a room with, you know, what Jesse – it's 150 people, 200 people, something like that, who are just yeah. absolutely locked in. Um, phones down, staring right at you, soaking up um, whatever gibberish we happen to, to spit out. But uh, incredibly respectful people who are just diehard about conservation and about public lands and about public waters in Texas and, and how to be better stewards of those things. And um, 
you know, Jesse spent a lot of time talking about the resource and the respect to that resource and respect to the process um, from learning how to hunt to harvesting to uh, processing to uh, really utilizing every piece of that animal for enjoyment. And um, I thought, what what a great human being to see if we could get him on the radio show. And uh, for, for some reason, he said yes. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, Jesse, oh, it was an easy sell. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you all. Well, what I think is cool about this is for a lot of us and a lot of the listeners that we hear from, we all approach this process from the perspective of the hunter first, right? That we are wanting to go afield. We want to harvest wild game. And then once we do, we've got to figure out what to do with it. And for a lot of us, that is kind of the afterthought. But that's not the way, Jesse, I think you're wired. My perception is you have come into this space from really what we would view as the reverse. It's from that food processing and preparation in the restaurant world. Is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely fair. Um, yeah, I knew I knew how to how to break down and butcher animals before I started hunting. So I came to it, yeah, exactly like you said, kind of in reverse. Um, I mean, I would say I'm used, I was used to dealing with them like cold, not still warm. But, uh, you know, that perspective uh, was kind of already there. Uh, but I was just fascinated by the first half of it. So, yeah, I did come at it um, from a different angle. Did you grow up in a food or restaurant family or how did you get into this space to begin with? Um, I, I didn't. I, I grew up, uh, you know, we, we ate pretty simply. Uh, uh, my dad and I fished a lot. I, I've fished since I was a little kid and we would always eat fish. Um, but I, I just started working in restaurants, uh, basically to make money, um, when I was a teen and now, uh, the way I like to put it is I never got out. I, I started working in restaurants when I was about 15, uh, and just continued works at all these places during high school and then saw, more of a long-term opportunity in the back of the house, the kitchen, uh, and moved into the kitchen when I was about 20, and I've just kind of been there ever since. And just, I love it. I, I love food. I love everything about it. I love the sourcing. I love the impermanence of it, that you can cook somebody the best meal they'll ever have, and they're, they're still going to be hungry the next day. So I think that it's, it's just a really fun vocation, and uh, I, I got into it, like I said, yeah, just, just never left. A lot of the stuff of yours that I've seen, whether it's through Meat Eater or Modern Huntsman or any of these others, um, is focused on local. Uh, how did you get into that mindset coming from just a traditional, it sounds like, restaurant background, but also then stretching into that wild game kind of niche? Right. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I came up in restaurants that just sourced food from wherever they, they needed to. They just, you know, we had a set menu or we just, whatever we wanted to get uh, was what we brought in. Um, I traveled uh, right at the turn of the century. Uh, I actually landed in Italy uh, on January 1st, the year 2000, and spent a few weeks there um, in kind of an ongoing cooking course or, or cooking class for, for people in the profession. And what I saw there was pretty eye-opening in that I saw a whole food culture that was based entirely on ingredients that they had available to themselves locally. And it was 
then there's amazing food culture. Obviously, I mean, Italian food, you know, it's synonymous with one of the, the, the best food cultures in the world. Um, and so I, I was, I saw that perspective of, of like, Oh, look, this is, this is all they had to work with. And they, they managed to build this thing that was just was in very, very good. Um, and a lot of culture, a lot of history, a lot of heritage to that based on these ingredients. And I, I just wondered what would happen if, if you took that same mindset back to Texas, which is where I live, um, and approached the food uh, in Texas the same way, which had never really, no, that's, it's unfair to say it had never been done. Of course it had been done. It hadn't been done in a little while. You know, I mean, our great grandparents did it. And, you know, of course, you know, indigenous people for 12,000 years did it, but in a modern context, it just wasn't being done. You know, we, you know, I worked in restaurants and we'd, we'd order whatever we wanted whenever we wanted it. And I uh, was wondering what the challenge would produce if we limited ourselves to just ingredients that we could source locally. And, and that's a broad term too. It's like how far away is local. And so we just defined it as Texas um, and just started cooking food that was only uh, available from, from basically people I knew their first names of, you know, where I could go to the farmer's market, buy vegetables and meats, um, you know, seafood out of the Gulf, seafood from Hill Country rivers, um, you know, local dairy, local fruit, uh, you know, olive oil from South Texas, things like that. And uh, we started that in 2006, uh, doing some dinners and just started uh, setting up on a farm or in the, in the courtyard of a hotel and just doing a dinner based on these ingredients and people would buy a ticket uh, and come to that. And, and that's kind of how it all kicked off. I love that. You know, I think, uh, as I've seen your content and, um, your approach, I think you were probably similarly influenced by some people that have influenced me, you know, the Anthony Bourdain's of the world. Um, those just incredible storytellers who, you know, every dish is expressing, um, a relationship and an experience. And, um, I think about guys like Sean Brock. I think about guys like you, uh, for, for Oklahomans, you know, we've been on this, uh, awakening of culinary standards here in Oklahoma for a while, um, with a, a handful of restaurants that have, have gained a lot of success. It's more than chicken fried steak today. Yeah. You know, uh, James Bort, you know, uh, Chef Black won uh, Chef of the Year this year, James Beard, uh, for the region. Um, but we had a number of nominees, and uh, we've had a couple of Best New Restaurants in the Country uh, awards given to restaurants like None Such and um, yeah. a, another new restaurant. And I've, I've eaten there, and I could, and I'm Sedalia's, um, which is a new place uh, here in town. But none of them. Um, bring to the table this idea of kind of gathering of local resources, right? I mean, yeah, they're going to local farmers. Um, they're doing that as much as they can, but this idea of wild game, uh, there's nothing really here in Oklahoma that represents that, um, and talks about that process and, um, what, you know, in your culinary journey, you obviously had this wonderful experience in Italy. Um, you know, would love to hear some of your inspirations that brought you on this path. But 
How did you ultimately land on exposing the value of what some would consider throwaway animals or throwaway pieces of meat and uh, bringing the value proposition back to uh, the conversation uh, that you've been able to kind of curate and uh, navigate people through. Right. I I think that, uh, you know, every region is going to kind of have its own expression and, you know, let's, we can contrast, um, you know, central Texas. We could even contrast it with Oklahoma, but, you know, maybe for this conversation, we'll say something like, like California, which is a huge agricultural area. Uh, where they, they they grow almonds and avocados and so much of the produce that's that, that's distributed throughout this country is coming from there. So, I would look at that area as being a place that really is representative of of vegetables, uh, maybe some seafood, maybe a little bit of game, maybe some ranching and things like that. But really, uh, what's most emblematic about you know like let's say Central or Northern California would be vegetables. Whereas in contrast to that, I'd say Central Texas. Uh, one of the most important resources we have here is game. Um, you know, to the west of us, it's very rocky. It's not really conducive for agriculture. You can't really dig. There's not good soil, but it produces lots and lots of deer, lots of hogs. There's turkeys, there's doves, there's ducks, you know, name it. It's it's a very lush region as far as it comes to game. So if you're going to represent a region uh, through local foods, uh, you, you have to pay attention to what that region is naturally producing or, or what, you know, we can, can, can glean out of it, what we can produce from that. Uh, and so I think that game in, in the vernacular of central Texas is super important in that it is, it is one of the key things here. I mean, you know, the, the, the people that lived here, uh, you know, the Comanche before that, you know, game was everything, obviously, and then the settlers, the German settlers, the Czech settlers, and and as as Mexico expanded northward, I mean, game was was super important for them as well, and they all uh, incorporated that into their traditions, into their cultures, which which eventually formed the the food culture of Central Texas, which I think game is arguably the most important component of that. Um, so, in doing so, you know we we are going to approach game as a, as a whole animal um, or we're going to, we're going to look at animals that are maybe sometimes thought of as not being super palatable, namely the feral hog, um, which I'm sure we're going to talk about a little bit. It's almost, <laughs> it's, that's the elephant in the room. Usually um, I wrote with a whole you book for sure. It, so. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah, you, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. avoiding it. It's a pretty um, stinky yeah, elephant in the room too. Yeah. 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 I'm a bit typecast uh, with feral hogs. So, uh, you know, and I think, you know, utilization of them um, is really important, but more so, you know, like being able to use an invasive and destructive uh, species in a restaurant situation is very exciting to me because, I mean, you're taking this thing off the landscape. You're taking a destructive animal. You're making more space for, for native animals. You're, you know, you, you're, you're protecting agriculture um, you're protecting water quality, all kinds of things. There's so many wins uh, in using something like a feral hog. And then to a lesser extent, other uh, exotics that have established in Texas, like the axis or the nilgai, which we use quite a bit of in the restaurant. So, um, 
I think that, you know, once, once we, we moved on from our outdoor dinners that we would do and into a brick and mortar restaurant situation, which was uh, almost 10 years ago, um, we were really able to ramp up our usage of game. And a lot of these are, are actual, this is actual wild game that we're serving. And it's, it's also very important to be clear about how we source that uh, because there's invariably going to be a lot of confusion around that. Uh, people, some people think that I get up in the morning and I, and I go pig hunting and I roll into the restaurant. And I'm like, Hey, I got four here, you know, and then we served it that night. That's not how it goes down at all. It, we are getting trapped hogs uh, from the hill country uh, that are brought into a licensed processor. They're killed under inspection and then they're sent to us and it's, it's completely above board, completely legal. And then also we're, we're getting things like axis deer and nilgai that are, that are either uh, hunted uh, with inspectors or trapped and in, in, in processed under inspection as well. But at the end of the day, all these animals are wild, like completely wild animals. So we are, we are able to get game on the table in a restaurant and it's all inspected and it's all um, very, very regulated. I'm sure sourcing all of your uh, stuff as locally as you are, there's got to be some cyclicality to your menu then, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, We, you know, probably about three years ago, we decided to change our menu about once a month. And that's the major changes. We still reprint our menu every day because of all the changes that occur on there. You know, I'll, I'll go up to the restaurant uh, in about a couple hours and I'll, I'll cut some steaks from a grass fed longhorn that we got out of South Texas. We're going to have four T-bones and four porterhouses. Once those are gone, it's gone. <laughs> and we're not going to have that again for, it might be a month before we, we have that similar cut on the menu. Or, uh, you know, we might be able to, to, to have some nice, you know, wild boar ribs if they're really fatty, like they are this time of year, you know, with the acorns on the ground. Things look great right now. Now's the time where we might serve ribs. And, you know, it's, it, it, yes, absolutely. You're going to see cycles. You know, just, just as a carrot comes into season in April, uh, you know, your feral hogs are going to hit peak in in december through march uh, you know you're you're going to have certain fish that, that come in in the in the in the heat of the summer uh, and then and then add in all your obviously the vegetables and, and citrus and things like that and it is a it's an ever-changing menu but that is absolutely the most exciting thing about it and i'd say it's not exactly what's available it's what's not available because then that forces you to become more creative more gracious uh, about what you do have. We got to squeeze in a break here, but just thinking about this kind of a restaurant experience and knowing what I've learned about you, Jesse, in just the last couple of days, I feel like this is the kind of place I would go in and just sit down and say, yes, like, I don't care what the menu says. I don't care what you bring me. I trust you inherently put something in front of me because who knows, you know, you're saying you may have four of those particular steaks. I don't know what you got in the back of the house. I don't know what the best is, but Jesse, if it's coming out of your kitchen, man, I trust it. (laughs) Yeah. I appreciate that. Hey, uh, let's squeeze in a break. We're chatting with chef Jesse Griffiths. And on the other side, we're going to talk to him a little bit more about um, the cooking school that he has 
uh, an award-winning book. And something I'm really excited to dive into, and we'll spend a lot of the rest of the show on this, is actually the processing and butchering process. Uh, some tips and tricks and places that we as amateurs go wrong that maybe he as a professional can help shed a little bit of light. So join us on the other side of the break for that. If you are still trying to figure out how you can hunt a little bit longer this year, remember here in Oklahoma, deer season goes all the way through January 15th if you've got archery equipment. But let's face it, it's getting cold out there. The days are getting shorter. You want to go sit, but it's just getting to be a little bit unbearable. Call our friends over at Oki Hides. That's O-K-I-E Hides. Okiehides.com. They make a box blind, whether you're looking for the ground round, an 8-foot platform, a 12-foot platform. These things are 26-gauge galvanized sheeting with uh, blackout carbine curtains. They've got marine-grade carpeting inside, so you're going to stay warm. It's going to be quiet. It's going to be a comfortable experience so you can stay longer and hunt harder this year. Check out okiehides.com on social media. They're made right here in Oklahoma City and taken all over the world. These things are the best hunting blinds on the market, uh, and they're locally made. So check them out, okiehides.com. We are chatting inside the Outdoor Hour with Chef Jesse Griffiths, and we'll be back after this on the Outdoor Hour, 107.7 The Franchise. You're listening to The Outdoor Hour with your host Taylor Maples and Josh Stratton on 1077 The Franchise. Welcome back inside The Outdoor Hour. We are chatting this week with Chef Jesse Griffiths, who has kind of become synonymous with uh, hogs in particular. And, Jesse, I think that's partially your own doing, for starters. Um, not only is that something that you have done and done well, but, man, you even wrote a book about it and won some awards for that, too. So um, how do you feel about being the hog guy? Well, I've, I've had to come to terms with it. I mean, I it's, it's a be careful what you wish for kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. And that I, I always loved hunting them. Um, you know, I found them to be a, a real a challenge. Um, and honestly, the kind of the, the way it started, it would be, we, we'd have a class and we do all these like extensive, like four day classes also do these like shorter, like three hour day classes. And no matter what the topic was, whether it was venison or just general cooking or whatever, you'd always get all these questions about hogs. People would say like, you know, just raise their hands and ask me just this, the widest variety of questions about, about wild boar, feral hog, like how do I cook it? What do I do? How do I process it? Are they edible? I've heard you can't eat them if they're over 100 pounds, 120 pounds, 135 pounds. Name, name the weight. Someone has told me that you can't eat a pig if it's bigger than that weight. Um, and so over the years, I started to, you know, research these answers. Maybe I would know the answers. Sometimes I'd be intrigued by how much curiosity there was around wild pigs. And so I started to kind of compile all this information um, into a book form. And then, yeah, over the years, it, it just, it, it, it took shape. Um, and I think most importantly, what we needed to come up with was an approach for everyone because probably the, the most 
common question I would get would be, uh, what is your favorite recipe for feral hog? And I, I, I will admit, and, and anybody that's ever asked me that, I apologize if I looked annoyed, but I was. Because I, my question after that to them would be, well, how big is this hog? Is this a 350-pound forest monster, you know, that just stinks? Or is this a four-pound piglet, <laughs> you know? So the, the approach to both of these animals is going to be distinctly different. And so what I decided to do is try to create these categories that would enable people and kind of empower them to approach preparing, well, butchering first off, butchering and breaking down wild pigs uh, and then cooking them. Because like I said, you know, a 25-pound young pig that's been feeding on acorns is going to be very different than a really big boar that you say shoot in far south texas or along the coast so there was just there's a lot of questions and i really i just tried to answer all the questions i love those two words enabling and empowering because i think that encapsulates a lot of the direction from which you have come into this space like we talked about at the top of the show so many of us get into processing wild game and cooking wild game because we're hunters and outdoorsmen and we now have a surplus of game meat what do we do with it um, but you've come at that from the opposite direction jesse and you now even have a school right where you will take people and teach them these sorts of things from start to finish Correct. Um, we actually started that very early on. We're in our 14th season right now of what's called the New School of Traditional Cookery. And uh, we started offering that actually before we opened the brick-and-mortar restaurant, where we were still kind of mobile. We were doing, we were cooking and serving or selling sausages and pickles at the farmer's market. We were still doing dinners. And then I really wanted to start incorporating like hunting butchery and cooking into one encapsulated class and so in i believe it's 2009 that we started the new school of traditional cookery and it is essentially a about a four-day course where you come in and it's everything from sighting in a rifle all the way through packaging and eating so uh you know, it's great for new hunters. It's great for experienced hunters. Uh, we we only cook game throughout the entire trip. Uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner will be whatever we are hunting. So it's, you know, typically deer, whitetail, and feral hog. Uh, but oftentimes we will incorporate um, catfish if we're running trot lines or doves if it's dove season and they're flying or ducks like we will this coming weekend like we've I've got a class coming up and we are certainly about to shoot some ducks down there and so we'll just incorporate that and fold it into the menu um, everything's involved like the, there's guides uh, lodging all the meals and then we just do these long classes you know the first class on one day is typically butchery we'll We'll just start to break down animals, you know, show you how to how to break down the hindquarters, how to cut chops, how to clean up loins and cutting necks and shanks and, and bones and offal and hearts and livers and everything that you can possibly use off the animal and how to cut it. And then the next day is going through all those cuts and then 
making them into more like value added products like sausage and tamales and pates and how to how to marinate and cook and braise and things like that. So I know this is going to be more challenging in an audio format than it would be if we were in a video. Um, but I want to talk about processing and butchering a little bit. I have told all of our listeners here that the three deer that I've shot in my time as a big game hunter, I have processed myself. And I have learned a ton in doing that. Um, Josh, I know this is something that you've got some recent experience with. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first deer I ever harvested when I was in college, I processed that one myself. But ever since then, I've been a drag it to the processor guy and that's a big part of the local culture yeah here, i think and and i'll be honest that you know i just recently did some filming w- with our buddy cal at meat eater and we were in a situation where leaving deer whole was not an option and uh so you know cal walked me through how he likes to gut them and how he likes to cut it for the gutting and uh definitely had an amateur moment uh you know probably throwing myself under the bus here but you know brand brand new montana knife company and i'm trying to listen to cal and and not really paying attention to what i'm doing and just gave myself a nice uh gash on the hand and i had to stop for a minute but you know we went and hung them in some cottonwoods uh on the river bottom for a day and and then went to uh break them down the next day and you know, uh, very humbling experience for, for, for me and, and, uh, but also a wonderful learning opportunity and appreciate Cal and, and everyone's patience on that. But, you know, uh, I think it's probably one of those things that there's a little bit of shame's not the right word, but there's a little bit of like, man, I, I feel inferior that I don't know sure. all of that stuff. Right. Well, there is so much satisfaction as an outdoorsman that comes from harvesting a game animal. And I think that there is such a barrier for a lot of us to that next step. And part of it is culturally, and Jesse can talk into this a bit, um, part of it is culturally that we look at this process as if we've won. It's over because we now have that animal on the ground when really the work is just starting, especially as a bow hunter. I've spent more time finding animals than I have doing any other part of this process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then once we actually get our hands on that game animal, Jesse, you know, there is such an accessible processing industry around here in Oklahoma that so many people will, hey, I harvested this. Yes, I'm going to field dress it and I'm going to just drop it off. And 20 minutes later, I'm in the shower and I'm done just waiting on a phone call that my meat's ready. Um, But one of the things we love on this show and one of the things that at least my crew of, of outdoorsmen around here, we are always trying to grow in our connection to those native ways and these native processes and in those food sources. Um, So I'm going to ask it that way for you, Jesse. You know, big picture, you have worked with a number of people in a variety of experience levels with breaking down animals. What do we do with this, and how do we make this easier, more manageable, more enjoyable, and start to really appreciate that part of this hunting outdoors process? Yeah, um, that is a a wonderful question. It's a topic that I'd love to 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 speak more about. Uh, but I think first off, it's like there's no shame in, in dropping off at a processor. I mean, you're still 
you know, getting the bounty of that animal. And it's whether you want to experience it. But what I would like to address is, uh, you know, or start this conversation off with more of addressing uh, like mentality. And for me, um, when I think about my hunting season, or let's say hunting uh, an animal, like you get, there's a big game animal, you know, for me, it's going to be a, it's going to be a hog or an axis or a white-tailed doe. Um, I'm done with that experience the, the minute the last package goes into the freezer. And from the very beginning of preparing for all of that, I keep that as my goal. You know, it's like that, that very last thing, that's the last part. It's not when I take the shot or when I, when I find the animal, like you blood trail and you find it. That's not, that's not when it's over for me. It's over when I get that last package in there. And I think when you, if you can kind of keep that as your mentality, uh, it, it, it helps you navigate it a lot more, a lot more positively. You know, we call it like cleaning animals, which kind of insinuates like that, that it's a chore, you know, cleaning is a chore, uh, and, and that it's not the, the most fun part of it. And granted, it's probably not as much fun as the actual hunt, the shot, the finding of the animal. But I, I take great enjoyment in processing the animal, breaking it down into pieces, trimming, um, you know, getting what's going to be made into sausage and the cuts, what I'm going to eat within the first week. Um, I, I really, really love that. I love the packaging. And it's typically done uh, for me, like either with a friend or two, or maybe even with my daughter, you know, and it's, and it's experience that, you know, we can sit around, maybe we're listening to music, maybe we're drinking coffee, maybe we're drinking wine, you know, and it, but it's, to me, it's all a very positive experience. And I, I think, so I think that like approaching it, just, just starting off with that is going to be really helpful with your processing mentality. Um, and then, after that, you, you also have to don't be intimidated by all these crazy cuts and things that you see people do on YouTube or on on social. It's do what you need. You know, if and I'll fully admit, like if, if I shoot a deer, I mean, we're pulling back straps and a lot of that deer, a lot of it is going to be ground or sausage. And there's absolutely no shame in that for me, because that's what my daughter's going to eat. You know, like that's really how I get her to approach game and enjoy game the most. If you've got a family where you can replace ground beef with ground venison, then absolutely throw most of that animal in the grinder. Don't don't apologize for it. Um, I think we kind of beat ourselves up too much about this whole process uh, to really uh, just kind of take a step back and say, hey, what what's best for for uh, the for me or, or my family as far as processing this game and so i say you know what just do what you need to do and just be lucid about it and then enjoy the process yeah you know having uh my kiddos um instead of just picking it up in there you know from the 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 processor and there'd be packages you know my kids sitting in the kitchen uh, last week with me as I was processing it and that learning experience, uh, particularly for my four-year-old son who was very intrigued, um, and my wife helping me um, as I was making cuts and her helping with the packaging and labeling and 
um, all of that was a really fun experience. You know, our, our whole family was involved in, um, in it and, you know, really having an understanding of where that was coming from. And my son was just completely uh, enthralled, you know. Yeah. I'm sure my neighbors thought I was a little crazy because I had the cooler out on my uh, porch and, you know, every <laughs> I'd go walk out, grab a hindquarter and, you know, off my front porch and walk inside with it as cars are driving by. And um, I'm sure they're like, what is going on over there? But uh, I really enjoyed being able to make that connection for my family, particularly my kids of, you know, my son is of an age absolutely enthralled with animals, reptiles and dinosaurs and all of it. And it's been hard for him to understand that I work for a conservation organization and I hunt. He thinks I should just be saving them all, right? Because he's four. Mm-hmm. And, um, but explain to him that balance and, and the management of the herd and the resource that it gives us and and that when we do take an animal's life it is to put food food on the table and resource for the family and um him being at an age now will he'll probably remember that occurrence um has was really enjoyable we've got absolutely we've got to squeeze in a break here before we do though jesse uh you have told me, and I know this is true from my own experience, one of the more controversial parts of breaking down animals is how are you going to cool a carcass, right? Um, around here, yeah. it seems that a lot of people are talking about um, soaking it for several hours, several days. I mean, I've even heard weeks. Which is absolutely, yeah. when you told me that on the phone last night, like, I don't know, you know, I. I've been. You and I are very clear that we're on a, a journey of, of learning, of and learning, understanding. right, and yep. understanding. But I have honestly never heard that in my life. The first time I broke down a deer, and I'm not going to throw anybody else under the bus because I learned a lot from this guy. Um, but he said, "Yeah, man. So first thing you want to do is, you know, we'll basically quarter it out, and you're just going to leave it all in a cooler for about a week, and every day go out and drain the ice and pour new on top." Um, and Jesse, I'm hearing from you that that is not the way to go. Is that correct? In my opinion. All right. So um, let's do this. I got to squeeze in one break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you to expand upon that. We'll talk about some throwaway cuts as well. And in your own words, the war on silver skin, all of that <laughs> is ahead on the outdoor hour. Hey, Pedigo e-bikes, you've heard me talk about them for a couple of years now, and it is still the most fun part of my adventures of field. Whether you're using it like I do to strap a tackle box and go catch some bass or perch or something deep on a, a lease, or you're just trying to ride around Lake Hefner here in the Oklahoma City metro area and increase your fitness ability, they've got 17 different models of bikes that'll fit you and suit your needs from the big oversized sand tires, to you know a gravel bike or even a street bike um, beach cruisers you name it they've got it you can choose your own level of exertion on these things if you want to just go for it and treat it like a mountain bike you can pedal till your heart is content 
If you want to do it like I do and just rip on it like basically a dirt bike with the throttle, you can do that as well. You can get back there further, go easier, exert yourself less, and just have a ton of fun doing the pieces of this process, like walking in and out of the field that maybe aren't the most enjoyable parts of your whole experience. So if you're interested in uh, Pedego e-bike, go check them out on the west side of Lake Hefner on MacArthur Boulevard. Lance will save you some money if you mention the outdoor hour. So go talk to Lance this week mention the outdoor hour and get yourself on a pedago e-bike test ride today we're chatting with chef jesse griffiths inside the outdoor hour on 1077 the franchise now back to the outdoor hour with your host taylor maples and josh stratton on 1077 the franchise Welcome back inside the Outdoor Hour. Final segment this week of what has been a great episode, in my opinion, chatting with Chef Jesse Griffiths. And we've covered a lot of really good stuff. I think some of the more technical stuff is still ahead here this week. So keep it here in the Outdoor Hour on 107.7 The Franchise. Taylor Maples, Joshua Wildman Stratton. Oh, yeah. And Matty Goldfish behind the glass, as always. There it is. There you know, it is. I, I got to thank him for not throwing in my. <laughs> a piece of garbage. There it is. Well, we almost made it. We almost made it through an episode. Shouldn't you shouldn't have, have said, said anything. anything. You shouldn't have said anything. Uh, I had it ready to go, but I was going to let it slide. But you brought it up, so I had to do it. I got it. Hey, thank we've you. only got about 10 minutes here. Um, and I'm going to try to reel us a little bit more back in just because I'm so excited about having Jesse Griffiths with us. But before we get into that next topic, I want to talk about our friends over at J.D. Adams and Company. Josh, you guys have had a ton of trips going out. You had a Christmas party recently, sales going on. I mean, I tell everybody this is my favorite place in town to go hang out at J.D. Adams and Company Fly Shop. Uh, but you guys just continue to find ways to reinvent what you're doing and outdo yourselves month after month down there. Yeah, man, it's that time of the year, right? Um, to come on in and and get the stocking stuffers. We got some cool new ten uh, ounce Yeti uh, JD Adams and Company mugs that recently came in. Great for you know just that little bit of coffee that you need. Um, I got one right here. Oh, you got the old one. I do have the old one, the blue one. Yeah. Now we have instead of the what are those twenty ounce or whatever. Now we have ten ounce, like little, oh little, little guys, yeah. yeah, like little coffee. Uh, running and gunning mugs. Uh, cool. So th- those are rad. Um, excited to have those in. Obviously, we still have got some great sales going on. Um, Orvis is on sale. Um, I think that started last weekend to 25% off. We still have some 50% off stuff going down. But uh, just a great time of the year to come in. Obviously, the Blue River is fishing off um, off the chains right now. Come in, get uh, the flies. The guys have been pretty consistent about getting down there so they're really on top of what's working and what's not and obviously there's plenty of trips uh coming around the 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 bend here um i think another cuba trip and then we're gonna do some smallmouth fishing trips this spring and summer here in oklahoma so come in and ask about that before you know it man it'll be bass fishing season again so always something going on 
There you go. J.D. Adams and Company, northwest corner of 122nd and North May Avenue here in Oklahoma City. Look for the sign on the side of the building that says Fly Shop. Can't miss it. Can't miss it. We are chatting this week with Chef Jesse Griffiths, James Beard Award winner for the Hog Book. We've been chatting about his restaurant. We've been chatting about his school. Um, I think really the last thing we have for you, Jesse, is some technical questions about, okay, let's say we've harvested a big game animal around here. You know, white-tailed deer seems to be the primary pursuit. Where do we go next? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. It's a very common question. Um, there's a lot of methods. And I think that really the approach that I'm going to recommend is, because there's so many different ways to achieve this, is obviously you want to get the carcass cold. You want to get the meat cold once it's gutted and or skinned. Uh, it needs to be uh, brought down to a very cold temperature as soon as possible. But it also needs to be kept as dry as possible. And that's where we kind of start to, to, to veer off from, from some of the more commonplace ways of cooling down carcasses, especially the farther south you get. I think that's when you're really going to start to see some methods like putting it directly on ice, um, which I am wholeheartedly opposed to. Um, you know, putting putting a, a quartered out deer or even a whole carcass on ice, um, people people will often tell tell you they're bleeding it, and that's it's not true. Uh, what's coming out of there is not actually blood; that's myoglobin. It's, it's what makes the muscles red. It's not you're not bleeding the animal in the traditional sense of the butchery process. Um, You're actually just soaking the animal in chlorinated water. Um, And let me put it in the context of like a a really nice steak. I mean, you would never go to the store and get a prime ribeye and put it directly on ice. Um, And and venison is no different. You know, for that matter, hog is no different. Um, You're, you're, doing it a real disservice you're soaking a lot of water into the meat um, you're adding moisture in there through reverse osmosis so water is leaching uh, or moisture is leaching out of the muscles and water is leaching back in um, it's going to be harder to get a good sear on the grill or to smoke it because all this moisture that's been incorporated it's also going to affect the quality of things like ground and sausage because you're adding more moisture into these muscles it is uh also a vector for bacteria so the more moisture you have the the higher the likelihood of getting bacteria in there and bacteria is the main culprit of gamey flavors so if if you're if you're having success by soaking it in ice what's probably happening is you're just very much diluting the flavor in the animal by adding all that water in there and i would I would assure you that you would have better results from getting it as cold, but keeping it as dry as possible. And so that can happen in a lot of different ways. Now, first off, a walk-in cooler, but nobody has a walk-in. I mean, some people do. I certainly don't. If you have a walk-in cooler, a deer can go in there for a week or two or three or four, really. I mean, they can go into a cold, dry, circulating air cooler for quite a long time. Uh, the second way would be uh, cold nights. You know, if, if, the, if the weather is cool enough, the animal can just hang 
and have a lot of air circulation going around it. Now, what temperatures Texas, are we talking for that? Yeah. So I would say, you know, the, I mean, obviously, when you get below freezing, you, you run the risk of freezing the animal. That said, if you have a freshly killed animal and it's going to get into, say, the high 20s that night, it won't freeze overnight, you know, because you're taking that animal down from body temperature all the way to, to freezing. And that's going to take quite a while. And even if there's like a light amount of freezing on the outside, if that's your best method for keeping it cold and dry, I would suggest that. Um, the top end of that I'd say would be in the mid forties. Now the health department would say the, the top end of that would be 40 degrees, but I'm going to say like circulating air, in a 45 degree night is going to be preferable to anything that might add moisture into our, uh, into the carcass. Um, <clears throat> let's say it's warmer than that. And the only method you have left is a cooler. Um, there's a couple different methods that you can use, uh, there, um, at which point you're really going to be just focused on keeping everything as dry as possible. So you can still use ice, uh, but I would say you, what you want to do is shield that carcass from the ice. And so uh, food-grade uh, contractor bags, food-grade bags, uh, once, the, once the quartered meat or the carcass is chilled, like, you know, at least most of the way, wrap it up, put the cavity facing down, and then pack as much ice as you possibly can around that animal and open up the drain plug so that no water is pooling. Um, Another method would be to use frozen gallon jugs, uh, which the benefit of that is that they do not melt. They don't really condensate that badly. Uh, I've had excellent luck, too, with uh, the Yeti ice packs or any ice pack because those freeze at a lower temperature than freezing. And so they're exceedingly cold. They're very efficient. And again, they're not adding any moisture in there, but you need a ton of them. You really want to cool that carcass down. I mean, really, you want it to be just above freezing and as dry as possible. And so that's a contentious thing. A lot of people swear by the soaking method. Um, I, I have seen it go south so many times. And I think that what we're really looking at there is it's, it's almost an emotional response. You know, you you meat from the store is clean meat from the wild is dirty. And so we wash it. You know, I think that's really what we're, what we're thinking is happening. And I really started to become more cognizant of that approach when I had a guide that works for me. Tell me one time that his family would, uh, when they killed feral hogs, they would put them in, in ice and water and they would add bleach to that. And oh. so their preference was to eat uh, bleached meat over over just meat, you know, and I'm like, listen, listen, we're really getting off on our goals here. And the goal is to, to have the best tasting meat possible. And every meat industry in the world approaches freshly killed carcasses by getting them as cold and dry as possible. And nobody's soaking a, a cow or a lamb or a goat, uh, you know, in ice. Uh, after it's killed. And so neither should we. And I understand the impediments in the field, you know, especially when it's hot. Listen, I live in central Texas and hunt in South Texas. And so I understand the difficulties of it, but I, if, if I, if I may, please, please stop soaking your meat in ice water. Yeah. I love that. Um, listen, we've only got 
a couple of minutes, and we're really even stretching for that. But last thing I want to ask you about, Jesse, is the war on silver skin. I have spent hours and hours and hours over the years cutting every little piece off of my meat, backstraps, whatever. Sounds like that's time wasted. Yeah, I'll give you the short version on that. So it's choose your battles. So silver skin is collagen, and eventually if it's cooked uh, for a long enough time at a high enough temperature, that's going to convert over to gelatin. So let's let's consider, let's let's put it in the framework of beef. You've got a brisket uh, that is high in collagen and fat and lean meat. Uh, it's got a lot. It's got a lot of all three of those things. And everybody knows a brisket needs to be cooked for a very very long time. If you grilled a brisket to medium rare, it would be inedible and tough because that collagen hasn't rendered out. So. Your cuts on, let's say, a white tail that move the most, that's going to be your neck and your legs, you know, the, the parts of that animal that are never not in motion um, are going to be the most muscular. And they're also going to have the most silver skin, uh, the most collagen. So those cuts really need to be cooked a lot more. And so if you want to spend the time meticulously removing all that silver skin, you certainly can, but you can also use that silver skin to your benefit by slow cooking it converting that silver skin down into gelatin, which the collagen will convert to gelatin once it hits about 190 degrees for a couple hours. It'll start breaking down into that rich gelatin, and eventually it'll soften up. Um, and then you will have a, a, actually a better experience with these cuts the more silver skin you leave on. Now, cuts that you're going to cook very quickly, that you're going to cook to medium rare, like your backstrap and your tenderloins and your steaks off the legs, uh, since you're never going to cook that collagen at a high enough temperature or for long enough, you do want to remove the silver skin in that situation. So the way I approach a carcass will be the parts that have tons of silver skin on them, I leave them alone, I slow cook that, and then I let them fall off the bone, and I let, I'll, I let, I let, the, I let time do my work for me. The parts that are going to get cooked uh, very quickly on the grill to medium rare, uh, your steaks and things like that, I will meticulously remove the silver skin from those. And so, like I said, choose your battles, but don't look at silver skin as the enemy. It is it's definitely not something that has to be removed. Man, thank you for all the insight this week. We are up against time, so we have to be done here. But we'd love to have you back uh, in the coming weeks and months and pick your brain a little bit more. Thank you for spending some time with us this week, Jesse. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Hey, I know you've got the hog book. I know you've got the restaurant die due in Austin. I know you've got some social media presence. Um, how can people learn more about you, uh, support you, maybe spend some money with you? Go ahead and just promote anything you would like. Yeah, the hog book, um, it's only available uh, through our website, which is the hogbook.com uh, and also through meat eater. So you can get it off the meat eater store. Uh, it's not available on Amazon and it's only available retail at the restaurant, which is Daidue in Austin. Uh, and then the Daidue, that's spelled D-A-I-D-U-E. The website also has all the information about the new school of traditional cookery, uh, which is our classes. Uh, sometimes we do day classes. Sometimes we do special dinners uh, at the restaurant. Like we have some hog dinners coming up. Um, and uh, yeah, and then on social media, I am Sacalay, which is a Cajun word for a crappie, which yeah. is my favorite fish. S A C dot A dot L A I T. I'm nuts about crappie. Um, 
and uh, you can uh, contact me there uh, through Instagram. And uh, yeah, that's it. I will just tease it. I do have another book coming out soon. We have not made the announcement and not don't have any details about it available yet. But uh, there is another book forthcoming uh, shortly. Well, sounds like we're going to have to have you back on to talk about that when it is uh, time to talk about that. It sounds like a plan. Hit us up on social media. Again, the show page at Outdoor underscore Hour. You can find me at T underscore Maples or Josh at Against underscore Current uh, on Instagram. Guys, this has been the Outdoor Hour with Chef Jesse Griffiths. Thank you for your time and insight this week, man. This has been fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I had a, a great time talking to you all. Well, we love that. We'll be excited to have you back and talk about a new book, it sounds like, uh, in the near future. I'm Taylor Maples. That's Joshua Wildman Stratton. On behalf of Maddie Goldfish behind the glass, thank you for joining us on 107.7 The Franchise. We will see you next time. Until then, go boldly. We'll see you outdoors.